Well, we've uh, come now to the fourth of the seven glories of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The first was Jesus, the rider on the white horse, the bridegroom coming to take his bride. The second and the third last week were these two angels declaring the resounding victories of Jesus over his human enemies and his spiritual enemies. The beasts and the dragon representing Satan and his strategies to try to destroy God's plan by destroying the church. And we saw that that plan will come to nothing, a resounding defeat. This fourth glory then speaks of how that victory of Jesus is given to us, the saints. Now remember, as we saw last week, this, the sequence in this vision isn't describing a series of end time events for us to put in our calendar, but it's painting a picture of what it means for us, the bride, to be united in marriage with Jesus, our bridegroom. Now, the way the ESV and other English versions render this passage can give the impression that what John is seeing is like a video with events happening one after the other. But wherever you see the word then in the text, it's actually simply the word and. So we should actually imagine John looking at the whole picture and describing elements of it in a certain order in order to highlight these different aspects of it. As an example, I, I own a copy of Bruegel's painting called The Netherlandish Proverbs and if I were to describe it to you without you seeing it, you might picture in your head a series of things happening one after the other over time. But then if I show you the picture, you'll see that in fact it's a myriad of things all happening at the same time. The order in which I might highlight and describe various elements of the picture will communicate to you the key things that I want you to notice in it. So last week we heard about the millennium, the thousand years and the little while And we saw it from the perspective of Jesus, the victorious royal bridegroom who's accomplished that resounding defeat of all of his enemies. In that vision, Satan was bound with a chain, thrown into the abyss for a thousand years and then released for a little while. That was a picture of the the conclusive defeat of Satan in the death and resurrection of Jesus And as a result, his very limited, very restricted activity. We saw it was a picture not of a literal long time and then a short time, but a contrast of the great power of Christ over the minuscule power of Satan. He's only able to do what God in his sovereignty allows him to do. Well, in this passage we see the millennium and the little while again. 
but from the perspective of this victory of Christ that's been given to the saints. So firstly, John sees thrones and those seated on the thrones have authority to judge. Now we're not told yet who these people are, but it takes us right back to chapter 4. Round the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. That was uh, John's first vision of looking into the throne room of God. And I said back then that these 24 thrones represent the totality of God's people through the ages. The 12 sons of Jacob who became, grew to be the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus who multiplied to become the true Israel, the church. See what Jesus said to them as they were having their final Passover on the night before his crucifixion. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He's sending them back even further in the scriptures to the Old Testament. Old Testament Israel, once they had entered the promised land, they would understand that the Lord was their king, the ultimate authority who gave them his law. He promised that as they obeyed his law they'd be blessed in the land. But the Lord also raised up judges. They were responsible to administer justice in the land. They were the instruments that the Lord used to deliver his people from their enemies. People like Gideon, Deborah, Barak, Samson and Samuel. And that was a a template, you could say, for the ideal system of government, a theocracy in which God rules his people through governors or judges. Now the Lord knew because of human sinfulness that this system wouldn't work and that's the story of the book of Judges, this repeating cycle of the people's disobedience and his punishment of them by sending armies of the nations to oppress them and then the judges who saved them when they repented. But even the judges were not perfect and they became more and more corrupt. Now the Israelites thought the solution to this problem was to install a king like all the nations around them had, one with absolute power, one who would go out and fight their battles for them. In other words, they wanted a man to come and step into the role that the Lord had over them. Well, the Lord gave them what they asked for. He gave them Saul, but only to teach them a lesson before he gave them one that he was already planning to give, King David, who then became a type of Jesus. And in Jesus we see that the Lord has stepped in to come and rule his people forever. So with this kingly rule of God now established in Jesus, the Lord walking among his people, Jesus tells his disciples 
to look forward to the day when that ideal, perfect system of human government will be restored, when there will once again be judges over the tribes of Israel. Now it seems like he's saying that these 12 apostles will have authoritative roles in the kingdom of God. They were uniquely prepared for that by their being with Jesus in his earthly ministry, but we'll have to wait and see if that's the case and what it will look like. Although we do know Jesus' clear instructions. Whenever his disciples were discussing or debating about their roles in the kingdom, he said the greatest in the kingdom are those who serve. True leadership is always expressed in servanthood with he himself as the ultimate picture of that. Jesus is Lord not because he's grasped hold of it but because of his humble service, because of his full and willing obedience to the Father right up to the point of death on a cross. It's because he perfectly obeyed the Father. It's because he laid down his life for us that the Father has lifted him up and given him the highest authority and power. So when you come to Jesus as your king, you come to your king who's also your servant. You come to your judge who has gone through the judgment in your place. He's the Lord who bears the scars of suffering and death for you. He's both at the same time the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb of God who was slain for your sins. The perfect partnership between authority and humility, between power and gentleness, between ruling with an iron scepter and leading with a shepherd's staff, between wrath that brings righteousness and mercy that brings peace. Jesus is both your Lord and your Saviour. He's your King and your brother. He's your master who commands you to obey, but also, as we've been seeing, he is your bridegroom who marries and gives himself to you. This is the, the Jesus that we know and love and worship. Then think for a moment, what does that look like then for us to be in Christ, to be like Christ? Here's a popular verse that's often quoted on its own. We know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What is the good that the Father is working all things together for? Well, that verse needs to be read in light of the verse that follows. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. See how the good is being conformed to the image of his Son. It's not something trite like saying, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. 
He's not saying that God will make sure that if you go through a time of difficulty, just believe and he'll make sure you have a breakthrough into prosperity and success. No, he's saying that all things, good and bad times, and especially the bad times, are being used by the Father to make you more like Jesus. Not a single moment of your suffering is going to waste. None of it is without reason or purpose, no matter how bleak or hopeless it may seem at the time. It's all planned and all used by the Father for your ultimate good, which is to be conformed to the image of his Son. So surely a person who is transformed into the likeness of the Son is going to display those qualities of the Son that I described before. The perfect union of authority and humility. The saints are in the image of the lion and the lamb, the king who suffers. Now why I say all that is because that's what this verse communicates to us. See how the next sentence tells us those who are on these thrones with authority to judge are those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. The ones seated on the thrones, they are the saints that we saw in back in chapter 6. Those who are under the altar, who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they were born, who were crying out to God for justice to come. It's those that we saw in chapter 11, we're told, who conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. It's those who, in the words of Romans 8, suffer with him in order that they may be glorified with him. Or Romans 12, those who have seen the mercies of God and in view of that present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Or in Jesus' own words, those who have denied themselves, taken up their cross daily to follow him. Those who have found their true life by losing their life in this world for his sake. Or in the words of Hebrews 13, those who go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Or the words of 1 Peter 2, those who do good and suffer because they know that Christ suffered for them leaving them an example to follow in his steps. You get the idea, I hope. To be like Jesus is both to sit on a throne and reign with him, but to come to that place through hardship and suffering and persecution. See what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See how there are three things that enabled Paul to count everything as loss in this world. There was the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There was having the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And thirdly, there is the guarantee of our own resurrection. Paul was prepared to die for Jesus and the Gospel. In fact, in the last letter he wrote, Second Timothy, he makes it clear that he knows he's about to be executed. Now what's interesting is that early church historians record that Paul was executed in the mid-60s during the time of Nero's persecution of the church. How was he executed? He was beheaded. That was the method of execution reserved for Roman citizens as opposed to crucifixion which was used on non-citizens. So we can't be dogmatic about it because it's not in the Bible but it's possible that the original readers of Revelation who knew Paul because he was the one who brought the gospel to Asia, to these churches in the first place, they would have heard of his recent martyrdom for refusing to worship the beast, Nero, refusing to take the mark. So verse 4 is encouraging them and us to follow the example of Paul and others like him throughout church history who have known this inestimable value of Christ who while in the eyes of the world lost everything just for a religious idea but in reality have taken hold of the prize of eternal life in Christ because their hope was in the promise of the resurrection. Now, verses 5 and 6 talk about two things that might seem enigmatic. The first resurrection and the second death. And we're told if we share in the first resurrection then we'll be free from the power of the second death. Now back in chapter 2, the church in Smyrna were promised the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There was a, used to be a Christian bumper sticker. Live once, die twice. Live twice, die once. That sticker was an attempt to try and communicate this idea of two resurrections and two deaths. And so here's a reminder of what we looked at when we were back in chapter 2. 
The term second death clearly implies that there's something we might call the first death. And likewise, the term first resurrection implies there's something that we might call the second resurrection. So while those, the term first death and second resurrection aren't used in the Bible, we actually still see them clearly described. The first death is the death that we all died in Adam. As our perfect representative, what Adam did in Eden was exactly what any of us would have done if we were in his shoes. Reject the command of God, disregard the warning that if we did it would bring death and eat from that forbidden tree. So sin and death came into the world and spread to every single human being because all of us are in Adam. And we demonstrate that, we prove that every time we sin. Now, God in his mercy didn't destroy Adam and the human race when he sinned, even though it's what we deserved. Instead, he was patient, providing every opportunity needed for Adam and his children to repent and turn back to him. But that's an opportunity that no human being will ever be willing or able to take on their own. Our hearts, if left to themselves remain hard and stubborn and rebellious. And so eventually the death that we know spiritually, being cut off from God and his favour, will eventually come to its fullest expression in the second death, the death of our bodies, and with it every opportunity to repent. The second death is final, it's absolute. It's what we know as hell, And that's why it's described with images like a lake of fire and the outer darkness. But the Gospel tells us that in Jesus Christ, God has stepped in. He's interrupted this trajectory. By sending Jesus who bore death and judgement on the cross, he's made a way for a sinner to be taken off of that highway to hell and to be placed on a new road with a new trajectory. This new way is entered into by being taken out of Adam and placed in Christ so that just as he became one with us in our death, we become one with him in his resurrection. So that's the first resurrection. When the Spirit takes the resurrection life of Jesus and gives it to us now by grace alone, through faith alone so that we can say right now we have been made alive with Christ. We have been raised up and seated with him at the right hand of the Father. Of course we'll all experience unless Jesus returns first the physical death of our bodies But because we've been taken out of Adam, out of that trajectory of death, that moment for us won't really be a death. It'll just be the penultimate step before we experience the second resurrection. When Jesus returns, when everyone is raised from the dust and we're given resurrection bodies clothed in Jesus' 
immortality. At that moment, our transformation into the image of Jesus will be complete. We will be like him. So if we remain dead in our trespasses and sins, we have only the second death to look forward to. But if we share in that first resurrection through faith in Jesus, we'll be part of that second resurrection and be called holy and blessed. There's no higher, no more wonderful thing than to hear the voice of God tell you that you are blessed and holy. Then the scenario described in verses 7 to 10 sounds very similar to the one we saw last week in chapter 19. This swift and resounding defeat of the armies of the nations who were gathered to fight against Jesus and his authority. But this time notice that the emphasis is slightly different because it's giving us that resurrected saints victory shared with Christ perspective. Back in chapter 19, the armies gathered to fight the rider on the horse and his army. Here, they come and they surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Their goal is to destroy the saints who have been raised and who are reigning with Christ. Gog and Magog, they come out of Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 and there they're used symbolically to speak of the great kingdoms of the north and the east, in fact all of the kingdoms of the world, but specifically the Assyrians, the Babylonians who had come and taken the people captive and taken them into exile. But Ezekiel 38 and 39 come after some wonderful promises in the chapters leading up to them. Promises that the Lord will come and be the shepherd of Israel. That he will bring them back to the land. That he will raise their dry bones from the grave. That he will fill them with the spirit. Write the law on their hearts. Reunite them into one people under one king whom he calls the son of David. And then after all of those wonderful promises to the exiles comes the scenario that's described here. You, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forwards and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and I will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. We saw that last week. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. 
So while in chapter 19 the armies were led by the beast, here we see the armies led by Satan, the dragon. And it's as if the Lord is saying, as he said to Gog and Magog in Ezekiel, as if he was saying to Israel's enemies, come on then, bring everything you've got, all your might, all your power, and you will see that once I redeem my people and I dwell among them, they are untouchable, they are undefeatable, they are invincible. Satan comes and he tries to destroy the church, but his efforts are and will be futile because the saints are untouchable when the Lord dwells among them. In Christ, we are undefeatable. We've been raised with Christ. We're now as invincible as he is. The city that Satan and his armies surround is called the Beloved City, the city that the Lord has set his affection on, the place where he has put his name and chosen as his dwelling place. So to fight against this city is to try to fight against God himself. To try to defeat the saints is to try to defeat the one who has made them his holy people. We need to keep reminding ourselves regularly that in Christ we are out of reach as far as Satan is concerned. Sure, there will be times when we feel surrounded by him and his armies, whether it's because of the hardships and pressures of life pressing in on us from outside or whether it's the battle raging within our hearts because of the onslaught of temptation and its resulting guilt and shame and fear. At those times we need to remember the promises of God. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you or among you is greater than he who is in the world. Or this one, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In a moment we'll be singing a hymn, the Prince of Darkness Grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That one little word is the word of the Gospel. It tells us that the risen Jesus is Lord and victor over the devil. So when the devil reminds you that you're a sinner, say to him, yes, and Romans 5.8, Jesus Christ died for sinners. When he tries to make you feel unclean, Say to him, yes, 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all unrighteousness. When he tries to make you feel powerless, say to him, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, yes, and the grace of Jesus is sufficient for me, for his strength is made perfect in my weakness. Memorise these promises and others like them now, when times are easy, 
so that you'll be able to recall and depend on them when the times of battle come. Even if the devil brings us to a place where it feels like we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we still have the promise and the certainty of the resurrection. Psalm 73, 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. 2 Corinthians 4.14 We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 2 Corinthians 1.9 We felt that we had received the sentence of death but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. What wonderful promises and of course the magnificent promise in our passage this morning. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now don't confuse all this with the shallow promise of the world that says You can just look inside yourself and discover who you are to know that you are enough or that you are able to realise your dreams. And don't confuse it with the pseudo-Christian idea that God loves you and accepts you as you are, warts and all, and that Jesus thinks you're awesome. No, all of these things that God says about us is only as we are in Christ because they are first and supremely true of Christ and so only true of us when we've received all that he freely gives us by his grace. Your confidence in the promises of God isn't to be based on who you are or your worthiness, but on the fact that the Father has poured out grace, grace upon grace on you. He's forgiven you of your sin, he's cleansed you of your guilt He's raised you up from death. He's adopted you as his child. He's given you hope in his own glory. So one more promise to finish with. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things?